Thank you for listening to the Sharon Church Podcast. If you'd like to know more about the church, please visit us at SharonChurch.com. Now we hope you learn from and enjoy today's message. All right, grab your Bibles. We'll be in Matthew chapter four or your devices. It'll be on the screen. I just want to encourage you to have it in your lap as well. I think it works better for you in that way. And so you can take notes, uh, make marks. Uh, I believe uh, scripture is holy. I don't know that your Bible, that book is holy. Feel free to write in it. Feel free to highlight in it. Uh, feel free to do all of that. We're going to continue our study called Fulfilled. It'll be the last week of this series. We'll start a new one uh, next week. Uh, but here are some scriptures that come up on the screen that we're going to use this morning. Again, so much of what Matthew is doing is rooted in the Old Testament. So I want to make sure that we make those connections. Otherwise, uh, we don't make the connections and we fail to understand how deep this uh, faith of ours goes in history. We're rooted in something that's been here for a really, really, really long time. So I'm going to read through Matthew 4. I'm going to do uh, verses 12 through 25. I'm going to finish up these fulfillment statements that Matthew makes. I want to read through it, and then we're going to study together uh, these uh, 14 verses. And I want us to really dig in and see what God has for us. And what's going to happen, I think if we do this right, it's going to open our eyes to a new understanding of the next three chapters, which we call the Sermon on the Mount. I think if we study this passage right, we're going to actually get to the heart of what the next three chapters are. So we need this one today. Let's go together. Matthew chapter 4. Let's begin in verse 12. Now when he, and that's Jesus heard that John, the baptizer, had been arrested, Jesus withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. So it was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way by the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. You can underline that, circle that if you want to. The people dwelling in darkness, there's another one, darkness, have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And while walking by the Sea of Galilee, Jesus saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease, every affliction among the people. And so his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick. Those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, and paralytics, and he healed them. And the crowds followed him from Galilee to the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Let's pray and ask for God's help. God, we need you. Uh, These are your words written by the hand of Matthew many, many years ago. But today, God, we need you to help us understand what you've written. So God, we pray that your spirit, your Holy Spirit would move in a mighty way. He would take these words of mine that are just flesh, just human words, and miraculously transform them into words of spirit and power and might today. God, we open your word asking for eyes to see and ears to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I don't know if you're like me, but there's this point in my life, and maybe just culturally, um, I mourn 
uh, the state of kind of where our culture is and where our world is. I just mourn um, where things have gotten and how they've gotten to where they've gotten. And one of the strongest things that I mourn and grieve is mall food courts. <laughs> I, you think I was going there? I'm sorry I went. Uh, yeah, do you remember mall food courts? You remember that? Anybody remember those? Man, what, what a magical place. So what a magical land where you could get Cinnabon and Chick-fil-A. Like, it's amazing. You could get uh, Chinese food and you could get Sparrow pizza. You could get them both all at the same time. You can mix and match. It's like a church potluck, except you pay more money for it. It's what it is, basically. And I just, I long for those days yet again. I remember them growing up. I grew up in a large family, and so we didn't go out to eat much. But if we ever did, the food court was easy because there's always something there that everybody liked, right? Because when mama made dinner, you're kind of limited on what you can eat depending on what you like and your preferences are. When you go to the food court, ain't no mama making all that for dinner. And so there's so much you can choose from. Then I became a high school, a student pastor. I taught high school and I was a baseball and volleyball coach. And so on any trips, that was my preference. It's just pull the vans over, pull the bus over, stop at a mall food court. We're not going to Hot Topic, but we're gonna stop at the food court. And so when you get there, everybody can get what they want. So you can go in and eat. I get them all a little more restrained. I can see everyone. I really enjoyed that. We had one rule, no Chinese food because we're getting on the bus and I'm not waiting for you another 20 minutes. You know what I'm saying? So that's, that's the only rule, but we loved it because everyone could pick and choose what they wanted. And then there are some people who pick and choose from the different restaurants. And it's not just one restaurant's enough. They want that chicken sandwich from Chick-fil-A and then they want some orange chicken and then they want a Cinnabon and then they want some breadsticks to go with it. That's what they want to eat and their stomach can't figure out what's happening here. But that's, that's how food courts work. What I want us to think through today is that while I love a good food court, uh, physically, spiritually, I think they're awful. Spiritually, we were never meant to live in a spiritual food court. There is a way of following Jesus. He is the way, the truth, and the life. It's not meant to be pick and choose. And so this morning, I want to establish a few things here in Matthew chapter 4 that I think for us as Americans, we have a really hard time with because we live in a democratic republic. So if there's rules you don't like, you just gotta, you gotta call a congressman. Write a letter, write an email, make a phone call. We'll get some votes, we'll vote together. And then maybe, just maybe, we can change some of the rule and the way of America or a state or a county. But Jesus hasn't come to lead a democratic republic. He's come to lead a kingdom. And as king, he does what he wants, when he wants, how he wants. And there's no vote telling him to change his mind. So as we study this in Matthew chapter four, I just want to encourage us to have a mind like that. And then I want us to see the grace and the mercy that's found in there. Matthew chapter four, let's begin here in verse 12. When Jesus heard that John the baptizer had been arrested. So John's been causing a scene. He's baptizing people to Jordan. They're not sure what to do. Uh, Jewish officials have um, melded themselves in with Roman authorities. And so now they've had him arrested. And notice what Jesus does. He withdrew into Galilee. This word in the Greek denotes the idea that he was emotionally bankrupt. Have you felt that way before? Where you just need to withdraw, where thing after thing after thing is going wrong. Remember, he's been in the wilderness 40 days and 40 nights. He's been tested by the devil. And he comes out to find this kind of news not too long after. So he withdraws into Galilee. If there's some emotional pain, I think there's some fear of what's happening We see the humanity of Jesus here. Then verse 13, and leaving Nazareth, his hometown. Remember, Mary and Joseph traveled back up to Nazareth from Egypt. He went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, 
in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. So now Matthew's going to give us Isaiah 9, 1 through 2. This is the fulfillment of the prophecy the prophet Isaiah declared about this, uh, this moment. In the land of Zebulun, and the land of Naphtali, he continues, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, the Galilee, uh, Galilee of the Gentiles. We're going to learn more about this area, but this phrase is key for you to understand. We're still in uh, a Judea area, a Judean region. But what's happened over time is that King Solomon started giving pieces of what's the promised land, this land, away. And he gave this region away to king, the king of Tyre. And he gave it to this king. And the king then, obviously, he's not a Jewish man. He starts giving different rules and edicts. And as king, he has different law. And so what happens is more and more people who are not Jewish move into the area. And then Jewish people begin marrying Gentile people. And so what this area now has been called is the Galilee of the Gentiles, situated in the promised land, among the Judean Jewish people, but under the reign and rule of the Roman Empire, And full of Gentiles, those who are not Jews. Which is why in verse 16, the land people, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. Now this land is called dark and they're looking for a great light. And and for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death. I don't know how you feel about regions around us, but there might be one that you would call the shadow of death. I don't know how you feel, uh, but it's the shadow of death. On them a light has dawned. So I want to give us some context to understand. Again, Matthew is one of four gospel writers. So another three guys have perspective on the life of Jesus. And they include details to get to this point that maybe Matthew does. And that's Matthew's, again, a Jewish author writing a Jewish book to Jewish people about a Jewish Messiah. He has a point here. But I want to give us some context. Jesus has made his way back to his hometown. He's... Uh, turned water into wine, he's been healing, he's been saying some things, and he makes his way back to his hometown of Nazareth. And while he's there, he is proclaiming that he is the Messiah they've been waiting for. So much so that he's invited to a synagogue, he goes from synagogue to synagogue declaring this very thing. And the rabbis and Jewish leaders don't like what's happening because they know him. Aren't you the carpenter's son? Aren't you him? Who are you to say that you are God? You are the son of God. And so they attempt to kill him. They take him to the edge of a cliff and they want to throw him off of the cliff. And in one of the baddest moments of Jesus' life, with the crowds facing him, the cliff behind him as I I picture it, he just walks back through the people. Like, I've seen some Liam Neeson movies, but that man, like that, that's a moment right there. And so he walks out and then begins this journey of leaving his hometown. He makes a statement quoting an Old Testament uh, adage that no prophet is welcomed in his hometown. So he's lost his hometown. He's got brothers who we will read later in the Gospels think he's crazy, like clinically has lost his mind. Mary starts has some moments of questioning. His friends who he grew up with are questioning what's happening. Now he's just lost a relative, the one who believed in him. It's now been arrested. And so Jesus makes his way out of Nazareth and up to this region situated on the Sea of Galilee. So I want to show you a map just so you can have some understanding. There's Nazareth down in the bottom left. That's Nazareth, where he is from. It's where all this was happening. But then Jesus makes his way out by himself. No Mary and Joseph, none of that. And he makes his way north and he comes to this land around the Sea of Galilee the land of Zebulun and Naphtali. And this is that region. And then you see Capernaum up at the top on the north side of this sea. This sea of Galilee is filled with fish. 
I mean, filled with it. But you've got to remember, it's a Jewish province, but really occupied now by the Gentiles, and it's under Roman rule. And the only thing this area has going for it are these fishing villages uh, along the coast of it, one of them being Capernaum. And in this fishing village, you can fish, and there's a lot of fish to be caught. And so there's a number of people who have made their way to this village to be fishermen, to fish. They found other areas weren't much fish there. They've made their way here, and they're catching a lot of fish. And in a Roman empire, wherever you are successful, you can expect very quickly to find Roman people there. And so the Roman authorities set up shop, and they set up a whole uh, tax system here in Capernaum. So there's uh, tax collectors there, and now they're employing Jewish men to be tax collectors of the Jewish fishermen particularly the fishermen, because this is the trade of the time. At the very same time, in more racially um, less diverse places like Nazareth, they begin to mock and make fun of Galilee. They call them half-breeds, can't believe they've gotten so dark is the idea. And they make this statement over and over again, uh, mocking the accent of the Galileans. And there are some of you today who have had your accent mocked over and over and over again. And some of you, you deserve it. It's terrible. But that's what's happening. This is that region. So Jesus makes his way there. And the fishermen are trying to make a living. But with all this trade and traffic, there's a lot of crime, a number of things that are happening here. You got to remember, this land was promised to the Jews. This is the promised land. And about 50 years before the time of Jesus, Rome takes over. And now it has become the Galilee of the Gentiles. They're in the promised land, yet under the reign of a foreign king. So they've been desperate for something to happen to set them free. They're hoping in a new king to come and get their land back. This is where Jesus makes his way to, not to Jerusalem, not to the religious elite, but up here to Capernaum on the Sea of Galilee. And as Jesus gets there in verse 17, we learn the message he's proclaiming or preaching. Repent, he says, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So the first word is repent. It means to change your mind in such a way that you change direction. It's to turn from the old, turn from what's wrong, and turn to what is right. Turn to follow Jesus. That's what repent means. The same message John the Baptist gave, but now Jesus is giving it, and it just means more when Jesus says it. But then he says why. Here's why. Here's why you should repent, because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That phrase at hand can be translated near or in our midst or even here now. What he's saying is the kingdom of heaven is here. Repent. Turn. There's a new kingdom and it's here now. It is at hand. So this phrase kingdom of heaven, you've also heard the phrase kingdom of God. Matthew is the only gospel writer to use kingdom of heaven because it's a very Jewish way of saying the same thing of kingdom of God. There's some subtle nuance there, but um, it's like as if you were to hear on the news that the White House issued a statement. You don't picture the White House with eyes, googly eyes and and a mouth moving to talk. What that means is someone on behalf of the administration has issued a statement. The very same way, when you read the word kingdom, I want you to think of king. A kingdom is here because the king is here. Without a king, there is no kingdom. So Jesus is making the statement. The way of heaven has come to earth because the king is here. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. So I want to do some work to understand how important this phrase is for the Jewish people. If you remember back in our Exodus study, um, they didn't have a king. They were under the reign and rule of a foreign king in Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. 
And he was an oppressive king. And so they were under his reign and rule. And what they desperately wanted was freedom, was deliverance from their slavery. And so they are delivered. God calls Moses. Moses and Aaron deliver the people of God. They go across the Red Sea. And in Exodus chapter 15, you can turn there if you want to. It'll be on the screen. They sing a song about God. And it begins this way, Exodus 15, verse 1. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang a song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. His horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. Yahweh is a man of war. Yahweh is his name. And the song continues like this over and over and over again about the power of this Yahweh and what he's done for his people. And then it wraps up with a statement, a line in verse 18. The Lord Yahweh will reign forever and ever. In the Hebrew language, this word reign uh, applies really to just kings. So it could be translated, Yahweh will reign as a king forever and ever. So here's what's happened. They've been delivered. They have a new king and they love it. They love this king. He's rescued them. He's delivered them. He threw the horse and the rider into the sea. And they say, this king will reign forever and ever. But we spend enough time in the book of Exodus to understand that's not how they feel all the time. And so as time goes on, Uh, and they're now living under the reign and rule, they find some issues. So I want you to pay attention to the timeline. They're set free. They go through the waters into the wilderness and they declare they meet a new king. God proves himself as king. And then what happens is God assembles a people, a royal priesthood, a uh, a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. This is who he's called out. So he's established himself as king. Now he's bringing up a people And then they find themselves at Mount Sinai, a mountain, a mount, and God delivers to them the Ten Commandments. This is the king saying, in my kingdom, this is the way things work. He established himself as king. He finds himself a people, and now he gives his rule. If you're going to live in this kingdom, this is the rule. This is the way it works. And so he invites them into his way, into the way of the kingdom of God And we know the story, they fail miserably. Over and over and over again, they fail. So God appoints people to rule over them that are called judges, and that just goes sideways real fast. And so then we get to 1 Samuel. And in 1 Samuel, the people of God are tired of the judges. They've already given up on God as king. They sang about in Exodus 15. And so they come to Samuel, a prophet, and they say, we need us a king. Tell God to send us a king. And in 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 6, them asking displeased Samuel when they said, give give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, obey the voice of the people and all they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they've rejected me from being king over them. We don't like this king. We want a new one. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, God tells Samuel, obey their voice. But here's what I ask. You shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So they establish God as king. They become his people. He gives them the reign and the rule and they don't want it. So they run. Now they want a new king. And God says, that's fine. You can have a king. But I want you to tell them about this king. And I want you to tell them that they want a king. This king also comes with a way. He comes with a rule. And his rule and reign, you aren't going to like it. It will lead to your death. You will despise this king. You do not want to do this. 
You need to trust me as king. Samuel delivers the word to the people of Israel. They're like, yeah, sounds great. We're still going with our king. We're still going to go with the human king. And they do. And it gets awful. And it continues to get worse and worse and worse in the Old Testament as the people of God step out from under the reign and rule of their king, God, Yahweh himself. And so then enters the prophets and the poets of the Old Testament. And they're trying to declare to the people who have lost their way, who have stepped out from under the reign and rule of God, that there is a king, there's an anointed king coming, and he's coming to take the world back. And for some of them, that's a message of hope. There is a king who will to come to deliver us out of the land of darkness. He's coming. And for some, it's threatening because they actually like the way of this kingdom. But the prophets continue to declare about this Messiah who would come. And Isaiah, one of the main prophets of this time, Isaiah 52, he's speaking on behalf of God. God says, therefore, my people shall know my name. Therefore, in that day, in the day of the Messiah, they shall know that it is I who speak. Here I am. Then he says, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness or blessing, who publishes salvation, that's life, who says to Zion, your God reigns, who says to the people, your God reigns. The voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voice. Together they sing for joy. For eye to eye, they see the return of the Lord to Zion. So then Isaiah says, so break forth together into singing, you waste places of Jerusalem. (laughs) All right. For the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations. The ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. So this poem from Isaiah would have been one that the people of God would have recited often, if not weekly, very often. And every good Jew and their family would go to synagogue on the Sabbath and they would sing the Psalms, literally the Psalms. They would sing them out loud. The rabbi would take a scroll of one of the Old Testament uh, books, maybe from the Torah, and he would take the scroll and he would read And he would focus on the coming of a Messiah, the coming of a new king to take his world back. And many of those rabbis would quote Isaiah 52, declaring what is to come. So now I want you to think about, use your sanctified imagination, picture yourself living in the region of Galilee. I want you to think about being a Jewish man or woman or child in the region of Galilee. And while you are there, you hear rumblings about this young prophet from Nazareth, and you hear about him turning water into wine at a wedding, you hear about him healing people, you hear about him making some statements that are causing the religious elite to lose their minds. So you kind of like this guy. He's one of us. You like it? And then you hear that he's made his way towards Galilee. He's been now going from synagogue to synagogue in Galilee. And so maybe you're a fisherman, maybe you're a fisherwoman, and you've sat outside the synagogues and you've heard rumblings of this. And he's here. And whenever you ask, yeah, yeah, but what is he saying? What is he saying? And the people say, listen, it's, he just keeps saying the same thing. It's Matthew 4, 17. He keeps saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is here. He just keeps saying it. Repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. So then you draw back into your knowledge of growing up, going to synagogue every Sabbath, and you remember the stories about a king, a Messiah, who would come, and he would be bringing the kingdom with him. And so then you think, could this be him? This might be him. 
But then that first word does something to you because now it's not just like you have to mentally assent to the idea uh, that there is a new kingdom. That's great. I'll look for it. That word repent means you got to do something with it now. The kingdom of heaven is here and it's up to you how you're going to handle it. Will you turn from your old earthly, worldly kingdom and begin uh, to walk under the reign and rule of God? Or will you continue under the king that you're in now? You have to do something with it. And this is the message that you are hearing. Because here's the truth, then and now, you and I, we live in a world with only two kingdoms. There's the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. And then there's every other kingdom that we'll just call the kingdom of this world or the kingdom of earth. You've only got two options, where you're going to pledge your allegiance. Those are your options. Either the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of this world, the kingdom of earth. And every kingdom has rules to live by. Every king has a law. Every king has an edict. Every king has a rule. And the king of this world has a rule. And the various kingdoms underneath that king have rules about how you will live your life in this world. And for many of us, we've ascribed to that kingdom. But this way of Jesus, the kingdom of heaven, it also has a reign and a rule. We've got to decide how we will live in it. What will we do knowing there is now a second kingdom that has made its way? Well, then Matthew gives us an example of four men who made a decision. Matthew chapter 4, verse 18. Jesus makes this declaration, this polarizing statement. Repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then like Jesus does, he just goes for a walk by the lake. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And I'm thankful for that last little information from Matthew, because I've always wondered, what do you call the men who throw nets into the sea? And now I've learned, they're called fishermen. Who knew? For they were fishermen, and he said to them, follow me, those two words are important, for I will make you fishers of men. Immediately, they left their nets and followed him. And then going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. And immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. So any logical person has to ask some questions here, like, what, what is going on? And what Kool-Aid are they drinking that that quickly they jump? from their livelihood to this, right? Because if someone comes into your shop, let's say you're a machinist, and someone comes in and says, oh, I want you to follow me. I'll make you a machinist of men. Are you going with that guy? You're calling someone, aren't you? You'd probably Facebook about it. No, most of you probably Facebook first, and then you'd handle it. But right, this whole thing is odd for us in our culture. So let me give you some understanding of their culture. Every Jewish family, again, would be at synagogue faithfully every, every Sabbath. And then there would be some schooling that would happen for their children. They would be taught things. And so they would be taught almost daily. They would be taught. And every young Jewish boy would be in this kind of rabbinic school until the age of 13. And at the age of 13, the rabbi would assess where this young boy was, how he was doing and the understandings of what was happening. And he would be given a series of tests. And one of the tests would be that the rabbi would just give a random verse. He would just give a random section of scripture from the Torah. And then he would expect this 13-year-old boy to quote the entire book that that verse comes from, from beginning to end, as if to prove, I know where this comes from. I know the whole story. And at the end of the testing, the rabbi then would look at his, at his disciples and he would decide whether or not they could do what he does. Can you continue in this Jewish religious study? 
And if the rabbi thought that young boy could follow him, he would say two words to him, follow me. And if they didn't, if they weren't, if they didn't qualify, if they weren't the best of the best, the rabbi would then look at that young boy and his family and he would say, go to your father. What that implies is go back to your father's trade. You're not gonna cut it here. Like it's the first day of tryouts and sorry, man, why don't you just go back to your father's trade? So with that in mind, I want you to think back through what just happened with these fishermen. You've got Peter and Andrew and they're fishing because they're throwing nets into the sea and that's how you know they're fishermen. And so they're doing that and this young rabbi comes by that you've heard things about and you're wondering if he actually is the Messiah. You're just, you're wondering. You've heard things, he checks a lot of boxes and you see him from your boat and he walks up on the shore and he looks at you and he says, follow me. And you've been dying to hear those words since you were 13 years old. Every little Jewish boy longs to hear, follow me. So what do they do? Well, immediately they run to him because they were at their father's trade. They were fishermen. They were the JV team. They were the B team. They were considered not good enough. And now this rabbi comes and says, no, 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 no. I want you. Follow me. And so they leave. We learned that these two young men, they left their nets and they followed him. They left behind the only thing that brought them comfort and income. Verse 20, it's just their nets that they've left. But you gotta understand, there's no other work there. This is the work. The work in Galilee is being a fisherman and they leave it behind because this rabbi said, I, it's you I want. Then Jesus continues down the shore and he meets two other men, James and John, from the, son, the sons of Zebedee. From some other sources, we learn that Zebedee is a very wealthy man. He has a fleet of boats. It's not just this one. He has a fleet of them. And he's actually working with his sons. And so then this rabbi comes up because these two boys have been told, go back to your father. This is what they've been doing. And Jesus says the same thing, follow me. And they do, but then what they do is interesting in verse uh, 22. They actually leave their boat and their father and follow him. Two words from Jesus, and they've left the family business and the long-term success that that could have been. And they left the heritage of their father. And they begin to now follow Jesus. So Jesus has established himself as king. The kingdom is here, which means the king is here. And like in Israel, where he established, God established himself as king and he draws a people. What's Jesus doing? Oh, he's drawing himself a people. He's creating a people. But I want you to notice the kinds of people Jesus is bringing into his kingdom. The JV, the B team, the not good enough. The ones who didn't qualify to continue. The ones who were cut at the first day of tryouts. This is who he has called now into his kingdom. He didn't go to Jerusalem, didn't go to synagogues, didn't go to those um, young men who had proven their rabbis right. He's gone to the ones who weren't good enough. And they're following him. And how many disciples do we learn in the scriptures that Jesus would choose? What's the number? The number's 12. How many tribes were there in the Old Testament? Oh, there were 12. What's Jesus doing? He's starting the whole thing again. He's establishing a kingdom by naming himself as king, and now he's drawing himself a people. And then in Israel, he takes his people to the foot of a mountain and declares to them the new law. This is the way of the kingdom. And wouldn't you know it, 
that Jesus takes his followers to the side of a mount and declares to them the new way of the kingdom. Do you see it? You see what Jesus is doing? He's tying all of this together, but the kind of people that he's drawing are not the religious elite and it's not the powerful. This is the kind of people the king wants. And all he asks of them, repent. So Peter and Andrew, James and John, what do they do? They repent. Did you see it? They left it all behind. They left the kingdom of fishing. They left the kingdom of family heritage. They left the kingdom of family business. They repented. They turned from that and they went after Jesus. What are they doing? This is repentance. When we say to repent, this is what it looks like, to leave it all there and to fix our eyes, to follow Jesus. They left their boat, their father, their comfort, their control, their identity, their upbringing, their background and tradition. So the question then is, well, then what does it look like where Jesus is king, where Jesus comes to take his world back? What does it look like? Well, we just saw it, but then Matthew continues in verse 23. Jesus went throughout all Galilee, teaching in the synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. That word gospel means good news. Proclaiming, preaching, declaring the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. There's two main things or two tactics that he's using. One is teaching and proclaiming. So look in your Bibles. If you have a red letter Bible or on your device, it's a red letter Bible. I want you to look through chapters five to seven. Just flip through it, particularly if it's a red letter edition. And I want you to tell me, do you see a lot or a little of red letters? In chapters five through seven, what do you see? A lot or a little of red letters? A lot, yes. You know what Matthew calls that? Teaching and proclaiming. That's what he's doing. Matthew five through seven, we call it the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew calls it the good news of the kingdom. This is what he's doing. He's teaching and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. How does Jesus institute his kingdom? Well, he begins with teaching and proclamation. You mean he doesn't assemble a militia? No. Doesn't build an army? Mm Mm-mm. Doesn't train them in gun safety? Nope. The first thing he does is teach and proclaim. And then from there, he heals. So now look at Matthew chapter 8 and 9. Is there a lot or a little of red letters in 8 and 9? Should just be a little. But then look at the headings. These are signs of wonders, these are miracles. He's healing, he's feeding, he's doing miraculous things. It's almost as if when Matthew wrote his book, he knew what he was doing. Like it's almost as if he was like, he's teaching and proclaiming. What's he teaching and proclaiming? Well, just read the next three chapters. Okay. And he's healing. What's he healing? Well, then just read the two after that. Like Matthew's laid it out simply for all of us. This is, this is discipleship for dummies right here in Matthew 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, and 9. So how is Jesus establishing his kingdom? Well, he's teaching and proclaiming, and he's healing. He's teaching. He's proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. What did Isaiah say? Well, on the mountains would the feet of those who proclaim good news be. Where is Jesus? Oh, man, he's on a mount proclaiming good news. It's the good news of the kingdom. And now he is healing So then the question, what does it look like? What does the kingdom of heaven look like? When Jesus shows up to establish his kingdom, what does it look like? Well, it looks like the Sermon on the Mount. It looks like those who don't listen to his teaching are like foolish men who build their house upon the sand. It looks like you've heard it said, but I say. It looks like blessed are the poor in spirit. This is what the kingdom 
looks like. His people model the teachings from the Sermon on the Mount. And because they do that, there's healing and freedom left in their wake. At no point in Scripture are we told to enrich or grow or strengthen the kingdom of heaven. There is nothing you can do to make it grow. It's already here. The only thing we're commanded to do is to live as citizens of that kingdom in such a way that people are like, man, who's your king? I want some of that. And then you open their eyes to a new kingdom. But this kingdom of heaven, what's left in its wake, is freedom and hope is left in their wake. So let me ask you a question. Over the course of Christian history in America, have we found freedom and healing left in the wake of the church? I would argue we have not. We've left people wounded and oppressed in the wake of the church. Because this upside down kingdom of God will always be upside down. There's nothing you can do to right side up it. It is meant to be upside down. We need to quit trying to right side up the kingdom of God. So more and more people are drawn to this kingdom. Look at verse 24. His fame spread throughout all Syria and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures, paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea. Now it's made its way to the religious and from beyond the Jordan. Because when the kingdom of heaven shows up, people are transformed. People are radically changed by the good news of the kingdom. When the kingdom shows up, the teachings of Jesus are not just moral ideas or a means of successful living. They aren't five steps to a healthy marriage or 10 steps to prosperity. This is the way of the kingdom. And when Jesus proclaims the way of the kingdom, people are forced to look face to face at who they are and about the kingdoms they've given their lives to. They have to come face to face with the fact that you've been under a reign and rule of a false king. But then they're drawn to him by his compassion and repentance. In Matthew 5 through 7, he declares some pretty bold statements, very divisive things. And then he goes from there into healing people. But the people who come in contact with the true kingdom of heaven, with this Jesus, they leave changed and transformed. How are your coworkers feeling about you? How's your coach feeling about you? Changed and transformed by the good news of the gospel? So this account is great, right? We can read it. Man, that was awesome. That happened back then. How cool is Jesus? But what's great about scripture is not just that it did happen, but that it is happening. So here's the truth for you and me. We're living in a world right now under the reign and rule of two kings. There's a king of the earth, a king of this world. And every little worldly kingdom is under his control. But then we've got a choice because the kingdom of heaven has come because the king came and the king conquered and the king wore a crown and the king has won the day. The king has won. So now you've got an option. Are you going to follow the kingdoms of this world that have been defeated or will you continue? Will you decide now to repent and follow the kingdom of heaven? We're all under the reign and rule of something. There's someone and something who has given you a way, who has given you a rule. And Jesus now has come to overthrow that king. He came to overthrow that kingdom. Paul in Colossians says that he has come to draw us out of the domain, the kingdom of darkness, and deliver us into the kingdom of his beloved son. There are two options. 
There's no third way. It's not a food court. Here are your options. You either eat what God made for you or you eat what the world made for you. You don't get to pick and choose. And this is a problem for us. This is a problem. As we study over the next few months, this Sermon on the Mount, this good news of the kingdom, what's going to happen is that Jesus will read your mail and he will meet you in the places you've kept private, the things you've left kept off limits to God for a long time. He's gonna pick and poke and prod all series long at it. And he's going to ask you if you trust him. Like, I know you believe in him like you used to believe in Santa Claus, but do you trust him? Do you trust this king? Because he's going to say some things to you and to me. He's going to talk about what marriage looks like. He's going to talk about how we should forgive people who have hurt us. He's going to talk about how we spend our money. He's going to talk about the problem with worry. He's going to make some statements for us that we have to decide what to do with. We don't get to pick and choose. Then in Matthew 8 and 9, he will heal people and he will give until it hurts and he will give and ask nothing in return and he will give and not demand they go back to school and get education. He will give and not demand a receipt. He will just willingly give and he will serve the poor and the marginalized and the foreigner. For some of us, that will bother us because that feels way too liberal for us. Well, listen, Jesus doesn't care what camp you're in. He came to declare the way of the kingdom of heaven. And while some of us might love the liberal social justice Jesus, we're just not so sure about the way he talks about the kingdom and ethics and morality and the way we love people and the way we use our money. You don't get to pick and choose. It's not a food court. It's either all or nothing. But what's great about this king is that he's good. It's for our good that he has given this law this way. And then we see his compassion. And again, as Americans, we don't understand kingship. We don't understand lordship. And so what we've done as American Christians for generations is we've said, man, I really like that part of Jesus. I'm gonna have to call a vote on the other ones. Let's really look at what it says. What does it say? It says you care for the poor. That's what it says. As Americans in a kingdom, we don't get it. But what a king says goes, all of it. We don't get to pick and choose. So you might love the teachings of Jesus when it comes to sexuality and marriage, but you have a hard time with how he treats the poor and then how he tells us to treat the poor. You may hate that he thinks there are people who are oppressed. And you might love that Jesus has compassion and loves the unlovable and the outcast, but you hate his teaching on purity and the church. You might love the way Jesus talks about God and wisdom, but you hate the way he tells you to forgive that person who hurt you and to do it quickly. Well, that's not the mindset of a disciple. The kingdom of heaven is not a food court. It is not a buffet. It is under the reign and rule of Jesus. Jesus didn't call the fishermen and say, hey, you guys, follow me. Follow me if you like the things I say. Follow me and pick and choose what parts of me you actually want to follow. It's just two words, follow me. And the truth is Jesus has met us on our lakeside, at our place of work, in our home, at a church. And he said these same two words to us, follow me. And the message of proclamation is the same, repent. You're under the reign and rule of a king. And God has called us to repent, to turn from that kingdom and to now pursue the kingdom of heaven.
That's the call. That's the good news. That's the good news of the kingdom. The kingdom you're under right now wants to kill you and destroy you. Your kingdom right now that you are worshiping under. Your kingdom of politics, how's that going for you? Is that going well? You feel more peace because of that kingdom? Has that king served you well? He has not because just like in 1 Samuel chapter 8, that king is out to kill you and use you and abuse you. And yet you've given your allegiance to some red or blue. And we're called to repent. The kingdom of sports, how's that going for you? Are, you? are you more at peace now with the schedule you're keeping for your kids and their sports? How is that going for you? There's a king, the king of entertainment, the king of social media. There is a kingdom. One kingdom we're under here in the south is just the southern kingdom. You're, you're under it. It's the yes, ma'am, yes, sir, no, ma'am, no, sir, go to church, as grandma said to, but never once let it impact your life. Praise God you're here, but you can be here and still worshiping another king. We don't get to pick and choose the things we like. We are under the reign and rule of King Jesus. So we're called to be citizens of it. So it first means to trust him. Do you trust the king? Again, not do you believe in him like you believe in leprechauns. Do you trust him? Do you believe him when he says things? Do you believe him when he tells you that he will take care of all of it? You don't have to worry. Do you believe him? Do you believe him when he instructs you of of the way of purity? Do you believe him? It takes trust to follow a king. And we must repent from following the other kings of the world. There's two options kingdom of earth and the kingdom of heaven. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes as Mallory comes up? The call for us is to repent, is to leave our nets, leave our boats, some of us to leave friends and family. It means to leave comfort and the pursuit of it. It means to leave the rat race of 2023. It means to leave the ways that we've been scheduling our lives. It means to leave the ways that we've been handling our finances. It means to leave the ways we've been handling people. It means to leave the kingdom of resentment and step into the kingdom of forgiveness. We're under the reign and rule of something. But if you declare Jesus as Lord, you've become citizens of a new kingdom. All we're called to do is to live like it. And that when the kingdom of heaven is present in a family, in a community, in a state, and in a nation, I believe healing and freedom are found in her wake. And in your pursuit to try to turn the upside down kingdom of God into a right up kingdom, You've hurt people. I've hurt people. We haven't left peace and joy behind us. We've left angerness and resentment and bitterness. We're not called to expand a kingdom. We're just called to live in it. The kingdom is God's. He will do it. We're under his reign and his rule. What he says goes. Here's what I love about this king. He doesn't give us laws to give us laws. He doesn't give us rules to give us rules. He doesn't give us an edict just because he wants to prove how powerful he is. He does it because it's best for us. 
You can trust him. But the way of the kingdom of heaven ultimately will be better for you. And I'm no prosperity preacher, but I'm telling you, your soul will be settled. The longings of your deepest desires will be met in Jesus. Will you be poor? Maybe. But you'll have Jesus. There's some of us here today who have never actually proclaimed allegiance to this new king. The invitation is simple. We'll study it more in the next few weeks. But the invitation is simple. You just gotta admit that you're poor in spirit. You're broken. You need someone to save you. Why did Jesus go to the fishermen? Because they knew they needed him. And so if you've been brought to that place in a land of darkness, a great light has shone for you and it's the person of Jesus who paid for all your debt to bring you back in a relationship with God. I think for most of us, the issue is that we've started to food court the kingdom of heaven. And we're starting to see the adverse effects of it. But you've grown so used to feeling angry and bitter and frustrated and judgmental and controlling, you don't even understand. It's because you've eaten from the food court. There's good news in the kingdom of heaven. Do you trust him? Father, we love you. Uh, This is your day. It's a gift to us. So I pray we use it as such. And where you've taught us in your word today, God, I pray that we don't walk out of here trying to justify, trying to figure out how we can um, mold and model our life to handle both kingdoms, God, that we would surrender fully to the kingdom of heaven. And that when you teach and it pokes on something in our heart, God, may that be affirmation that we're hearing from you. So God, I pray that you would continue to press deeply upon us, that you would continue to set us free in the deepest parts of our hearts that still claim allegiance to the kingdom of the earth. God, set us free from that domain of darkness. Deliver us to the kingdom of your beloved son. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen.